Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. Health Minister Adrian Dix joins us as BC announces it'll reinstate mask mandates in all healthcare settings. Plus, BC is on track to post a $14 billion deficit over the next three years. Surely some belt tightening coming, you ask. Think again. And guns, drugs, and stolen cars. Delta Mayor George Harvey joins us as you look at a new report advocating for a reinstatement of Port Police. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Mr. Adrian Dix and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry announced their fall vaccine push as they encourage British Columbians to get shots for COVID-19 and the flu. The campaign will launch on October 10th. Here's Provincial Health Minister Bonnie Henry on the issue of masking uh, and the measures that the health care system is taking. Um, Next week on October 3rd, we're we're going to be putting back in some of the measures to make sure that we're doing our best to protect people who are most vulnerable in those settings. Medical masking will become a requirement again. Continuing medical masking by healthcare workers, visitors, contractors, volunteers in patient care areas. So, really focusing on those areas where people are at risk. So, visitors to long term care must wear a medical mask in all common areas and when participating in any of the indoor events that are happening. That's Provincial Health Minister Dr. Bonnie Henry. Joining me now is Adrian Dix, BC's Health Minister. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, good afternoon, Jess. So tell me, what are you seeing and in, in hearing in regards, not just masking, but just in regards to COVID and, and just the respiratory season and the concerns you see or the challenges you see before the healthcare system over the next two or three months? Well, what we're seeing with respect to respiratory illness with COVID-19 right now is more people, more people sick. We see this in an increase in hospitalizations, which we measure, and which we'll be now be posting about again weekly, all of this information. We see it in the, our other ways that we measure the prevalence of COVID-19 in BC. We're entering respiratory illness season, and we have a good idea from previous respiratory illness seasons what happens. And we have some advice, for example, from places in the Southern Hemisphere who've gone through their winter this year. And what we're seeing is more COVID-19, and we're preparing for influenza season. And that means uh, we, we laid out today the details of our uh, comprehensive vaccination program mm-hmm. that we're putting in place. And we're putting other measures in place because people have to be more cautious this time of year, including, of course, um, the return in healthcare settings of masks uh, uh, in hospitals and long-term care that will be new requirements, again, for masks. Mm-hmm. And so what we were trying to do today, and what we, I think we did, uh, what Dr. Henry did, was bring people up to date as to where we are, which is important, and to put in place uh, to inform them about the vaccination program, which I think is really important, people are very interested in, and uh, finally to make sure that people uh uh, the people in healthcare settings uh, are wearing masks so that we keep people sa- as safe as possible this season. So if I were to visit uh, a family member, uh, and um, would I have to wear a mask in that room in a healthcare setting? So so what's happened is, in, in a hospital, absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. Remember, hospitals, people are in for relatively short stays. We have different people. You might well, if you visit anyone in the hospital recently, it'd be very unusual. You wouldn't be in a room with other people. And so, it, and it's not people's home. It's a temporary place. So in hospitals, everybody will be wearing masks all the time um, in patient care areas. That means visitors. That means staff. And that uh, reduces, um, uh, can, can reduce and support uh, reducing uh, infection from COVID-19 in those settings. So that's what we're doing. And uh, that will be starting October 3rd. In other healthcare settings, it'll be slightly different. Uh, at the bedside in uh, a long-term care home, people will be able to remove their masks, according to what Dr. Henry uh, recommended today. And, uh, but everywhere else, of course, in common areas and group activities, they won't. It's the a long-term care home is different than a hospital. It's someone's home, as well as, obviously, a facility with a lot of medicine and health care and a lot of vulnerability to COVID-19. So those are the recommendations that Dr. Henry's put in place and that will be implemented as of October 3rd. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the, the concern, of course, is also beds. And let's just say we have a really bad season when it comes to respiratory season. Uh, my understanding is you've reclassified beds as well? That's right. We've, um, we've, uh, this is a reflection of what's happened really since last October, which is an increase in the census or the number of people who are inpatients in hospital. And we saw that, in fact, all summer was the period when, you know, bed totals and the census typically dips in summer. Well, it didn't dip this year and hasn't been. It stayed consistently high really for a year. So we are increasing the number of base beds, and this has implications for staffing and other things. Um, in response, as we did a comprehensive review of our beds, so we're going to have 9,880 9, uh, uh, base beds in British Columbia, and this is part of the reclassification that you would expect given the circumstances uh, in acute care. So, can you just? I'm trying to understand. So, are are these beds from sur- the surgery side? So, no. What, what happens in in hospitals is we've had, and you've heard me report this probably. 50 times, as on, uh, on in different reports, we had 9,200 base beds and 2,300 surge beds. Okay. So it's being reclassified here. And the surge beds are beds and people come. For example, there are 9,700 people in the hospital today, and they're inpatients, and they're being taken care of in hospital today. The key, the key, though, is that when we establish them as simply base beds in the system, uh, we ensure permanent staffing for those beds because I think we're going to need that. And there's no indication that we're going to be returning to pre-2022 levels of uh, healthcare census for a couple of reasons. One, we get a lot more people in B.C. We, our population's increased in the hundreds of thousands in the last two years. People are coming here. The economy is good, of course, and everything else. And so that, that, that's one set of things. Secondly, we have an aging population. And thirdly, the impact of these pandemics has been to increase uh, utilization of acute care uh, and the most serious, for example, ambulance visits. And that's just what's happened. So we have to respond to that by uh, changing the way we measure and the way we organize our acute care beds. We've done this, by the way, every uh, every winter of COVID-19. So we did a similar briefing in 2022 and 2021 and 2020, because in respiratory illness season, even without COVID, even before COVID-19, mm-hmm. that is obviously a time of heavy demand um, for for hospital care. And uh, it's our expectation that this year will be no exception to that. Uh, the health officials that were let go because they did not wish to be vaccinated a few years back, uh, is there any plan to bring them back into the system? No. Um, 
the um, the mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers uh, continues uh, in our system. That's a provincial health order in BC, uh, British Columbia, and many people, of course, called for us to put the, that um, requirement in place. BC was the only uh, jurisdiction to be able to put it in place province-wide, although many hospitals and other healthcare facilities in eastern Canada have it in place. What we're doing, though, and what you've seen, it's important because I think people say, well, you need healthcare workers. What's going on? What couldn't we use people? Well, you look at the comparison between BC and Alberta and the most recent Canadian health information stats about staffing. You'll see that we led Canada in new registered nurses last year, and they lost registered nurses. So a healthcare system that supports the science is one that's supported, I think, by healthcare workers. These are the right decisions. They're difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm very respectful of everybody, but uh, that mandate is going to continue. I'd add finally that you know we added since January 2023, 5,221 new nurses in BC. This is uh, through the college we have this which is yet another, this is after the statistics I just talked about, showing Mm -hmm. how all the efforts to recruit internationally educated nurses, to add nurses to our system are effective, and internationally educated doctors, medical graduates, Mm -hmm. 524 new ones have been registered, which is, again, really remarkable progress. Minister, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Hey, right on. Take care, Jeff. We're joined by uh, Jerry Mayer Judson, our show contributor. We're going to talk today about sensory rooms, which I got to admit, I didn't, mm. I don't know much about them. When you when you talked about it this morning, I want to learn more here. Oh, of course. So, um, BC Place opened a permanent sensory room on September 25th. That's this past Monday. Mm-hmm. So, a sensory room is a dedicated space away from the ongoing event at BC Place, whatever it might be. If it's a sporting event, if it's a concert, it doesn't matter. Um, and it's outfitted with sensory tools and artwork it's also dimly lit it's a pretty pleasant place to be and folks can go there if they're feeling maybe overstimulated at an event and whether that has to do with whether the person might be autistic they might have ADHD or mm-hmm. they might just feel anxiety about being in such a crowded place um, I noticed even I don't like being in very crowded places anymore post-COVID I had a lot of mental weirdness with that so hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chris May, he is the general manager of BC Place. And we had a chat this morning about the sensory room, as well as BC Place's commitment to accessibility going forward. The view we're taking to everything at the stadium right now is how do we make it the most inclusive and welcoming experience for everyone, regardless of the journey they're traveling in life. And I toured a lot of stadiums and went to, to visit some other venues when I, I got this job. And and these rooms in other stadiums, especially in the United States, are really common. We look to work with the people that helped a lot of those stadiums put their rooms together to, to bring it to fruition, and, and thankfully it's happened. What went into setting up the space? What was that process like? So, I mean, identifying the square footage is sort of the most you know basic and, and baseline of the task. We work with this great organization, Culture City, out of the U.S. who works with us, and they really take the space and go step by step. Everything from what type of carpet should be on the floors to how are the walls painted or dressed. They physically send all of the activities and different things that are in the room that they have specially designed and worked with. So it's all designed by people who uh, work in these type of rooms on a regular basis and have the expertise behind them. Uh, One of the pieces of interactive art in the room was actually designed by someone 
uh, and built by someone who has autism. So they also are really inclusive in how the actual pieces of art and interactive pieces are, are uh, made and installed. What is the response? I know it's, it's early days yet. It's the first week. But what has the response been to the sensory room? Overwhelmingly positive which is great because it's not just the sensory room. We also now have sensory kits available at our guest services stand, at our concierge stand, so people can come and get those if they need them. We've had a couple of nights where all of our sensory bags have been used. Every day that the sensory room's been open, uh, we were testing it over the last couple of weeks before we did the official opening. Anytime it was open, it, it was really well utilized. All of our staff, or a large percentage of our staff, have gone through special training about what a sensory room is, who would be using it, how to properly interact with people, uh, how to identify people that that would be using it and, and things like that. So it's it's a really all-encompassing program. It isn't just, you know, a room in a corner where you can go for some quiet. It's properly designed. It's It's got different touch points around the stadium depending on what someone who's neurodiverse or, or needs some of that time would, would need to have a good experience. That's super wonderful. Pardon me if you did mention this and I did not register. Whereabouts in the stadium is the sensory room located? It is very close to section 252, which is, you know, just across from that section towards one of the big ramps that anybody know that's been oh, yeah. to DC Place would know about our ramps. So it's kind of tucked away behind one of those ramps in a quiet area of the building near gate 252. And we have a staff member that's usually stationed there and is able to welcome people in and, and show them the room. Uh, interesting there. Are there other universe, or sorry, uh, stadiums or large uh, sporting facilities that have something like that? Absolutely. It is much bigger in the States than it is here. Um, they have City Field in New York where mm-hmm. the Mets play. There's not a sensory room per se, but there's kind of a sensory kiosk, which has a pretty similar vibe. It just dampens the sound, dampens the light for you if you, mm-hmm. if you need a moment. Um, there's the Allegiant Stadium in Nevada where the Las Vegas, the Raiders, where the Raiders play. play. Um, That's a new stadium too. Yes. So then of course it's outfitted. I think there's actually two um, sensory rooms in that one because there's like a nightclub and then there's also yeah two two sensory zones. It's Vegas. You kind of need it. You do. (laughs) I would love more sensory rooms in Las Vegas. It's a very overstimulating place. And the first one was actually in Cleveland um, and that is where the Cavs play. That's theirs. It was called something else. And uh, that's that's the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah, that's right. I'm curious. So, when you're out in a sort of a busy area like yeah. a stadium or something mm-hmm. like that, it, it, it's a sense of you're feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. So, being overstimulated, it's sort of different for everybody, but it is intense psychophysiological discomfort. And if you maybe just, it's just hard to tamp down on all of the sensory input. Mm-hmm. So, if it's a lot of moving in your vision and a lot of loud sounds and a lot of competing noises for sensory input, it just feels, you might feel like anxious or warm or um, irritable or something. And it's mm-hmm. just best to remove yourself from, from the situation. So, it's even, you know, if you have anxiety, oh, yeah. and you may feel a bit overwhelmed. Those rooms are available. Exactly. It's a good, it's a good spot to, to disengage and not even just go in a dark corner or go into the bathroom. It's a dedicated, designated space, which I think is awesome. Do you think that the conversation around sensory overload, mm-hmm. that it's a lot more prevalent than we actually think? Yes. And I looked up the stats. So of course, sort of globally, mm-hmm. neurodivergent people uh, represent about 15% of the global population. So it's a pretty sizable wow. chunk. It's almost a quarter if you think about it. So it's it's a good to have these conversations and to make accessibility part of the conversation because other people benefit from sensory 
sensory rooms as well. If we talk about being neurodivergent, mm-hmm. usually we're talking about autistic people or talking about people with ADHD. But then, yeah, if you have anxiety or if you just need a second, it's really nice to also be able to have access to this infrastructure. That's really cool. And right? uh, once again, <laughs> if uh, you are at BC Place, uh, and it opened this week, right? Yes, it opened on Monday. And so it'll be available at every event going on at BC Place onwards. Oh, well, wow. yeah. that, is, that is excellent. So section 251. Yes. Excellent. And since we're talking uh, stadiums and football, we just mm-hmm. uh, we had a, a story move on, on Twitter here. BC Lions have put Colin Kaepernick on their negotiation list. That just got tweeted Ooh. out uh, by a journalist, um, Farhan Lalji, and uh, I don't know if he's coming here, and uh, maybe they'll give him a tryout. I know he was That'd trying be cool. He was. He said he was available for tryouts for the New York Jets. I think this that was a story that's moved the last twenty hours. Oh, interesting. Hours. Okay. But uh, we've just heard Come in the last on, probably hour or so. Yeah, they may put him on uh, Colin Kaepernick on their negotiation list. So there you go. That's there you a, go. that is amazing. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you. You may recall yesterday we had Ravi Kalo on the show, BC's housing minister, as he announced uh, guidelines and and deadlines for uh, his housing naughty list, basically telling uh, 10 municipalities how many units they uh, hopefully will build over the next five years um, with repercussions. The city of Vancouver, by the way, of the 60,000 that um, were recommended by the government, 28,900, so just under 29,000 housing units would come from the city of Vancouver. And most people say they should be able to hit uh, that target. Uh, now, uh, one of the other things the the city does, of course, is that um, they want to build a lot of uh, market and below market rentals as well. There's a huge, huge demand throughout Metro Vancouver, and especially in the city of Vancouver. Of course, the city has approved uh, some of these market and below rent, uh, below rent and market rental homes. Um, unfortunately, with the rising interest rates, the market, a lot of developers haven't actually put a shovel in the ground. So how do you get them to move forward and start building uh, some of these units? So joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, a new proposed policy amendment is Sarah Kirby Young, of course, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Young, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jess. How are you? I'm doing very well. I appreciate uh, you joining us today. I know you've got a very busy schedule. Walk me through what uh, is potentially being proposed here uh, in regards to um, getting some of these developers to start building some of this market rental housing. Sure. And maybe I can provide some context. This report specifically is about streamlining and updating our below market rental policies. So uh, City of Vancouver has a housing Vancouver strategy before the province had asked us asked to set housing targets and asked that two-thirds of that be rental. We were already moving in that direction in Vancouver to focus on delivering more rental, um, including below market. And we had a couple of policies uh, in place in order to achieve that. And so the below market rental units require that in exchange for rezoning or getting additional density, that 20% of the units had to be below market mm-hmm. and that those units had to be 20% less um, than average rents at the time. Mm-hmm. Where we ran into the difficulties and challenges is um, that those rates were set at the time of rezoning and they were fixed in perpetuity. So there was no allowance to amend the rates either for inflation uh, in conjunction with the Residential Tenancy Act or if a tenant leaves um, and say it's a long-term tenant, they've been there for many years, to reset that so that the next tenant would be paying still 20% below market rates. And so what this report does, in a nutshell, um, is to provide the opportunity to reset the rate when that unit turns over. So it's always maintaining that 20% level of affordability 
um, and it's allowing those projects to be viable. I see. So, uh, but rents are pretty high now in in, in Vancouver uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, is there any concern that even below market at twenty percent, that's still very high? Well, the challenge is getting the units built, the project built, and the units delivered in the first place, and. So last term, we ran this pilot program. It was called MERP, the Moderate Income Rental Housing Pilot Program. Uh, there were about 60 applications. Um, about It dropped down to about 16 projects that proceeded just based on economic testing and viability. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of those um, are still in process, and they're encountering a lot of those economic challenges. So the way the program was structured, we're seeing that we're not getting them through the gate and actually getting them built. So, of course, we want the units to be as affordable as possible. Um, but we want to get them built in the first place. Um, do you f- find you're going to get pushback from housing advocates and say, wait a minute here, with rents are even slightly b- below market today, is incredibly expensive compared to what it was even you know three years ago. Uh, do you expect pushback on, on this this particular policy? Well, last term, um, the council that I was on, we did one amendment to the MARP program at that time to allow um, the rents to be adjusted annually. Um at the same rate as for the below market units that the Residential Tenancy Act allowed at the time, 2%, just like you could adjust the market rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, we didn't hear a lot of pushback on on that. Um, I think what we're hearing loud and clear now is that we want to get rental units in the market, um, but the 20% is better than not having units at all. Um, it also doesn't replace the need for us to continue to push forward on nonprofit uh, and social housing projects where you have more deeply discounted rates. So you have to remember this is sort of one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, the rents are really expensive, but the vacancy rate is also incredibly low. So we need more supply um, and we need more affordability. And so there's going to be a number of tools in the toolkit that are going to work to try to tackle those two challenges. Um, I just want to get to the uh, housing naughty list. Uh, how comfortable do you feel that Vancouver can hit that 28,900 housing unit target? Well, I can give you some context on that, and I think that we feel pretty comfortable. Um, remember that the province set the targets at 75% of what they think is actually needed. So for Vancouver, they said 28,900 units, please, can you deliver over the next five years? But the real need is, if you look at what what is the real need as the province defined it at 100%, is 38,000 units. And to give you some context, Vancouver actually approved 41,000 units over the last five years. So we're on pace. I think that we can do it. I think where the challenges are going to come in is delivering the number of family units that the province is um, aspiring to deliver and the number of affordable units because that's where the market economics are really challenging because larger size units are more expensive. And if we want to double the number of affordable units, which is what the province is asking Vancouver to do, then we're going to need policy adjustments like the one that we're talking about, uh, or at least to look at those options um, in order to meet those higher goals. Hmm. do you think this naughty list, I mean, is it worth the time to put communities like Oak Bay on there, uh, even some of these other smaller communities? Uh, uh, because ultimately, the, the biggest bang for your buck is Vancouver, uh, Surrey, which isn't on the list, Burnaby, Richmond, the Tri-Cities, uh, you could include all of the North Shore, you got North Van District there. But, you know, are we not just wasting our time in regards to worrying about what Oak Bay, uh, if it hits its targets or not? Not that it shouldn't, and I think that community has a bit of a reputation for not wanting to build homes, even though it's very small. Should we be wasting our time uh, on Oak Bay? You know, I, I think Vancouver can't, and Surrey or Burnaby can't shoulder the burden alone, and I think everybody has to do their part. 
Um, and so to kind of dump it just on certain cities and not others, I think there's a recognition that we have broad housing issues, not just in Vancouver, not just in the province, but we're seeing it increasingly across the country. And everyone needs to play their part. And I think that the way those targets have been set, it's a much smaller number of units in Obey or uh, in a smaller municipality um, than it is for the larger cities. But it's proportional also to where the expected population growth is going to be. So if we're going to take kind of a, you know what I mean, all shoulders to the wheel and we're all in it together approach, um, I, I don't think that it should just zero in on a few of the larger centers. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm not against Oak Bay, just so that, you know, it'll irk a few of the blue bloods in that community to actually, you know, not oppose everything. <laughs> and some of these communities need, uh, I'm going to call it a poke in the eye, but they need to be urged to start doing some of that stuff. And, and I know, uh, and I don't mean to pick on Oak Bay, other communities have that as well, but it is kind of fun to watch in regards to asking them to double to 500 units or something like that. It's not the, it's a drop in the bucket compared to Vancouver, that's for sure. Uh, well, Councilor Young, Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No worries, Chad. Anytime. Happy to come on. Let's talk finances for the province. Yesterday, uh, Katrina Conroy was on the program. She's our finance minister, and she provided a quarterly update. And, uh, you know, when you look at the big number, uh, you're seeing a $14 million deficit over three years, uh, 6.7% uh, for 2023-2024. It's the earlier part of the year right now, so things can change. But, of course, we learned that uh, natural gas prices uh, were down significantly, a billion dollar charge on wildfires as well. I also asked her about whether or not she would uh, consider a raising taxes or tightening uh, the provincial belt uh, collectively so we can uh, pay for some of this or have to pay for some of this. Take a listen to what uh, Finance Minister had to say. People are and BC are facing big challenges and, and the record wildfire season has been significant and uh, so we thought that uh, it might be a bit higher, so we had, had anticipated that. What we didn't anticipate was the um, lower natural gas uh, prices and revenues going down so substantially. And actually, even the private forecasters didn't uh, didn't forecast that either. They Everybody thought that it was going to go down a bit, but not. I mean, the prices fell more than 50% since, since the budget. I mean, I'm feeling uh, like I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, we will continue to have a good, strong economy because of, of our, our past practices and how we're moving forward. That was Finance Minister Katrina Conroy on this show yesterday. Joining us now to talk a little bit about the first quarterly update uh, is Ken Peacock. He's a chief economist for the Business Council of British Columbia. BCBC remains deeply concerned about the expected economic slowdown. Ken, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Good to be with you. Yeah, uh, when I was looking through the numbers yesterday, and yes, we had the finance minister talking about uh, you know the, the the deficit, and there is a five and a half billion dollar contingency uh, built in. But what concerned me was actually the one point five percent growth being downgraded to zero point eight percent, which tells me that we're not really going very far very quickly in the next year or so. Yeah, you, you put your finger on precisely what got our attention as, as well, Jeff. Um, it, it's, a, it's a little surprising to see the deficit jump that much. There are some unusual circumstances, but uh, it, that is exactly what jumped out uh, when we went through this update was the slowdown in economic growth that is, is now anticipated in 2024. So, you know, what happened was they actually upgraded uh, the growth outlook for, for this year in 2023. But then when we look out to 2024, things slow down quite dramatically. 
Um, and, and as a result, uh, another deficit is projected. Well, that was the case with the budget as too, but another deficit projected next year and the year after. So w- what's happened is last year the government uh, had all this windfall revenue, and they baked that into the budget and then have budgeted from that elevated, uh, elevated spot last year. So we've kind of got ourselves in a situation here in BC where we're, we're in a sort of a structural deficit situation, and it's going to be challenging to get out of. So in, in this case, the response should be uh, uh, tighten the belt. Uh, that means holding off on spending, perhaps uh, finding savings, perhaps cutting back, uh, or uh, even, let's say, raising taxes, which I, I'm sure nobody on this uh, and listening to this show wants to hear at this particular point. But, I mean, is it a question where government should be looking at tightening its belt? Yeah, this is exactly the, exactly the difficulty, Jazz. Uh, it would not be wise, I wouldn't think, to contemplate raising taxes at this point. Part of the difficulty BC faces is we are, you know, we we have become less competitive over time. Uh, it is difficult to attract capital investment I- into the province, and uh, just to circle back to the, the slow growth that you identified a moment ago, uh, 0.8% and, and a similarly kind of soft number this year. When you look at that economic growth and, and then look at population growth, which is much larger, uh, you know, population growing at two and a half percent or something like that. We just found out, in fact, it's a little larger, closer to three. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're getting is decline in, in real per capita incomes, real per capita GDP. Uh, and, and, and this is what is especially worrisome. So the, the uh, update that we saw yesterday expects two years uh, of declining per capita income in this province. 2% declines back-to-back. These are sizable. Uh, you usually only get a, a per capita GDP contraction in a recession, and it's very uncommon to see two consecutive years. So when I take those, you know, 2% decline and another 2% decline, that kind of puts prosperity next year back to where we were in 2017-2018, Jazz. So the, these are meaningful declines, uh, and to, what this suggest to me is is it's now time to really focus on the economy, getting some more large projects underway, uh, stimulating investment and uh, attracting activity into BC. Uh, that is the, that is the sort of top priority now. Now, one of the other issues uh, sort of beyond this fiscal year is our carbon tax. Uh, we led the world uh, in regards to introducing the carbon tax, and many would argue. Uh, and now we're accelerating, not just here, but across the country. It is significant. And so I think part of the conversation, and I think when you look at is it the right thing to do? You put a price on carbon. We have challenges with uh, climate change, and this is addresses some of it. But I'm not sure if it changes behavior. What I know it does is hitting a lot of folks really hard when it comes to the pocketbook, not just consumers, but the impact it's gonna, it is having on our industries, whether it be forestry, mining, and many others. Um, I know you look at a variety of sectors in this, this, uh, this economy. Can you give me a sense of what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what the numbers tell you when it comes to an increasing carbon tax and its impact on the economy? Yeah, this this is a, a particular an area of particular concern, uh, and that's because the carbon tax is now rising by $15 each year. Uh, it's up at $65 now, and it's slated to continue to go higher. And just given BC's circumstance that we already have clean electricity, most of our electricity is produced by hydro, uh, there's not a lot, lot of opportunity for, for low-cost 
emission reductions. Um, there's not, not a lot of low-hanging fruit in BC, so the carbon tax is going to bite hard uh, as it rises, and it's going to make it more and more difficult for large capital investment in the province. And in fact, Jazz, the government itself has some some modeling results trying to get a handle on exactly what the economic impact is going to be. And they did these projections out to 2030, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit beyond the, the time horizon we're talking about. But the, uh, the projections that the government did are, are very concerning. They, they show a substantial impact on the economy, making it smaller than it, than it would be in the absence of a carbon tax. And uh, the, the damage or the, the negative economic impact is very, very much focused uh, in the resource sector, uh, natural gas production, forestry, and mining, and there's huge spin-off benefits from these sectors. So this is something that uh, the government is going to have to turn its attention to and and look to ways to kind of reduce that damage that is currently anticipated. So this is the good government's own numbers telling them that the the carbon tax is having a negative impact on the economy, but they're still keeping that policy for now. For now, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, yes, because at the same time, what's going on here is uh, there's these greenhouse gas emission targets for 2030. So uh, trying to reach those targets uh, is going to require some carbon pricing and some other policies. But the question is, uh, you know, how, how much investment uh, do, you, do, do you chase out or deter from coming into the province? And uh, how many operations are going to close down as a result of not being financially viable? There are also some some uh, some banks and some investment houses that are taking a look at this kind of on an industry-specific basis, and, and they're finding that it's going to be very problematic for mining projects and other large projects to to advance here in BC once we get the carbon price up and once some of these other policies like caps on emissions come into place. Ken, uh, thank you for your time. Look forward to chatting with you again. I, uh, I know it's a huge issue, and I do want to get you in studio, and we can talk a little bit more on the carbon tax because it's one of those stories. Well, you know, people may complain about it uh, now. They don't. I don't think see the broader impact on the economy uh, as we get closer to 2030. I think it's a really important issue. Ken, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Well, a new report about policing of Metro Vancouver's uh, port terminal facilities uh, says there's really literally no downside for organized crime to set up shop here. And one BC mayor and police chief are sounding the alarm, Delta Mayor George Harvey uh, and uh, Neil DeBoer, Chief Constable at the Delta Police Department, both join me now. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen, for dropping by. Oh, thank you. Well, I think this is a very uh, interesting uh, conversation uh, because uh, I'm I'm of the vintage where I remember when they cut back on the port police back in the 90s and the early aughts. Um, So it's the first question for you, uh, George, is... Why did you, as a community, as the mayor with the police chief, want to move forward and do this? Generally, that's a federal jurisdiction, a federal debate. Why did you want to be involved in this? Well, as mayor, my responsibilities is also for public safety. And over the many years that I've been working in Delta as a city manager, and now this is my second term as mayor, uh, we continuously had a pushback from port officials, the port board, with regards to reinstating port police, which, as you know, was disbanded in 1997. Mm -hmm. We have a fentanyl crisis in our city, in our metro Vancouver area, in our province, in Canada, yet we're turning a blind eye through, and this is a responsibility up to the Prime Minister through the federal government, uh, to allow port operations the size of Port Metro to not have any policing and security 
statistic policing and in our ports. So has it been uh, something that's been frustrating? Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, talking to uh, our good police chief here, uh, Chief Dubord, I uh, decided to hire Peter German in order that we could actually have some professional report done with regards to the policing problems. And I think he's, his report has been amazing going through the history, but outlining the problem that, that, that lies there right now. It's a non-secured port for allowing illegal drugs and other contraband into our country. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, consultant Peter German, Doug Lepard as well from the formerly the Vancouver Police Department uh, was part of this report as well. Uh, Chief Constable, let me go to you. Um, what, at its core, for our audience, does the report say specifically of what is tr- going, going through that port uh, and getting through to uh, you know, our communities? What, what are the things that are, that are happening there now? Right. So often our ports are the first and often the last point of interdiction for us to be able to look at illegal drugs, illegal precursors to drugs, and uh, property that's being commonly sold, either stolen cars or even catalytic converters now are often being shipped in containers overseas for the precious metals that are inside catalytic converters. Mm-hmm. So, so it's important for us as we interdict uh, these containers that are coming in and out of our particular ports in, in the Metro Vancouver area that we have a mechanism, a law enforcement mechanism for us to be able to evaluate uh, the risk associated to them. So probably and also guns and drugs, um, stolen cars, all of that's going through. Absolutely. So in regards to the challenges that we have in our communities right now, fentanyl or precursors, to the precursors as well are going through as well, coming through? Absolutely. So we do know that precursors are coming through. So we're both importing and exporting drugs because often uh, we're manufacturing them right here and then exporting them out through the same containers to other locations across the world. What passes for security right now at the port? So currently, they, it's really, uh, they, I think the report calls it a potpourri of, of security right now because there is uh, cameras and there's security guards, but law enforcement is left to the RCMP and, and a unit called the Federal Serious Organized Crime Unit, so FSOC. Uh, we also have CBSA, but CBSA isn't a law enforcement agency, right? Mm-hmm. They're like customs in the states, and you know, even today, the CBSA identified containers that had 200 grams of opium, uh, 200 kilograms of opium in it, and now they turn it over to law enforcement for us to be able to investigate. So they'll be turning that over to the RCMP to be able to follow up the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, Mayor Harvey, uh, I'm just trying to understand why we wouldn't have a police force. I mean, we walked away from it. I get that. And, we, and, and Chief Constable DeBoard here has just really articulated well what's coming through the port, what's getting through the port. What is the hesitation here uh, in regards to security? You know, I'm, I'm puzzled too. And uh, I just came back from meetings in Ottawa with, and again, uh, a couple, few months ago, and I think a year ago, Chief DeBoard, we were back there asking for the same thing, for attention. Um, they just look at you with uh, glazed over eyes and uh, it's always somebody else's problem. But as mayor um, and with the support of my fellow mayors in Metro Vancouver, which have unanimously support this, um, we need to move forward and just, you know, continue to insist that there needs to be police presence in some form there. And I'm not a police person. Uh, my job as mayor is to try to ensure that we have attention to this problem. But I, I you know, I always lean on our good police chief here as to what should be actually there at the port. Mm-hmm. But having nothing, it's, it's a national security problem. 
Yeah, I mean, especially when you look at the issue of India at the moment, we've had China as well. Yes, we've talked about cybersecurity. We talk about other types of security. But one of the challenges, I want to argue, is we just need to build a security apparatus, which deals not only with espionage, cybersecurity, but, you know, how do we welcome the world? Well, it's our airports and our ports uh, in regards to goods and services. And, uh, God, it seems so bloody naive, quite frankly, that we don't have any sort of please presence at our at our port, um, Chief DeBoard, uh, what's Seattle like? Have you been able to sort of get a sense of what their security apparatus is like at the port? We have the mayor organized a trip for us to be able to visit Seattle, and it was a great opportunity for us to understand how integrated they are. So right at the Seattle port, you have the FBI, you have Homeland Security, you have DEA, and you have a local police force being able to get gra- uh, intelligence from the ground, being able to report up all to these other agencies working together to be able to resolve some of the organized crime issues that they have. Mm-hmm. But the other piece you mentioned, Jazz, that I think is important as well is access control issues. When you think about our airports, there is complete access control. No one gets through there without a security clearance, which is the way it should be. Well, we don't have those same sort of security measures at our ports. Unfortunately, we have about 30,000 people with access to our ports. And of those, only about 20% of them actually have security clearance. So the rest, uh, they're moving goods and services, they got a job to do, but at the end of the day, uh, it's not the full clearance that you usually, usually have to get before you get many other jobs in this society. Absolutely. Whether you're working at City Hall, there's security clearance, yeah. whether you're working at many, whether you're, you're teaching your son's soccer or coaching your son's soccer team, you need a security clearance. But unfortunately, there's many people working at the ports, unfortunately, where there's no clearance. Is it safe to say that we have all sorts of organized crime that have either directly or indirectly have people they know working at the port? Is, is that a fair comment? I think that's fair to say. I think that's certainly identified in the report as well as, you know, the first thing they identify is the fragmented security system that there is, you know, between the RCMP, CBSA, local municipal police and, and no port police. But the second piece identified is organized crime and, and the infiltration of what potentially could be and is at the ports. Mm-hmm. Well, it is sober reading. I have the report right uh, in front of me. Policing uh, Our Ports, it's called, it's written by uh, uh, Peter German and Doug Lepard, well-known uh, law enforcement uh, individuals. My guests are uh, George Harvey, Mayor of Delta, and Neil DeBar, Chief Constable of the Delta Police Department. Give me a call on the open line. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, perhaps you've worked at the port. Uh, perhaps you have an opinion uh, um, on what is happening at our port. Perhaps you have some institutional knowledge of what it was like in the 1990s before they disbanded the port. Or maybe you're a truck driver who actually goes to the port every day. Give me a call. Would love to hear from you. We are speaking to the Mayor of Delta, George Harvey, and Neil DeBoer, Chief Constable with the Delta Police Department. Uh, they're talking about a new report that was released today called Policing Our Ports. Uh, it's a report to the City of Delta. It was commissioned by the city, uh, and it was uh, written by uh, Peter German and uh, Doug Lepard, both very well-known senior uh, police officials here uh, in our province. Uh, as many of you know, the Ports Police was disbanded in 1997, uh, and even then and I recall, as I said uh, in my early days as a reporter, we talked about how it was infiltrated by organized crime groups. And in many cases, all you have to do is go to the downtown east side or any of our communities in this province, and you see the drugs that are coming in. They're coming through a lot of our major ports. And, uh, and at the end of the day, we do not have a ports police. We have some sort of security apparatus, which is hard to articulate, but somehow we do not have... Uh, ports, please. So please give us a call on the open line. We'd love to hear from you in regards to this issue. 604-280-9898. That's 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to Margaret in Langley. Hi, Margaret. 
Yes, hi there. Good afternoon, uh, John. Um, I'm just kind of shocked because I come from a port in the UK and we know that all ports are targets for criminals to come in on vessels. They can come in cover of night. Um, Vancouver has the Marine Police on the ocean and occasionally they catch drug hauls. We've seen it on the news, great drug hauls of cocaine and heroin and all the rest of that junk. They they catch them in the act and the, 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 the ports are targets for easy targets and you need to have port police you need to have good coordination all the technology we have now with the cell phone the laptop the ipad you know they can keep in touch with cbs they're all down the line there's no it can be really tight uh network of communication with one another oh we've got something going on here get here quick you know and you all have to work in concert together there must be port police there must be all them working together with each other to alert uh, dangers and they do catch some of the marine police and but they need the port police to be there and pay them more pay them big 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 more 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 margaret thank you for your call i appreciate it um it, you know we've talked about this it is a no 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 brainer here george uh in regards to just uh, you know lay people even looking at this issue and saying look we got to do something here um beyond this report what happens next uh next is uh we'll be doing a letters uh both to the prime minister and responsible ministers both uh in ottawa as i mentioned and also with the province uh that will be a report uh, a letter coming from the committee of mayors through metro vancouver because um, this just isn't Delta's issue. I'm speaking on behalf of it. Um, but all the mayors, all the mayors that are in Metro Vancouver are very concerned about the just just the, the, the effects of not having any police presence there at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's our job as mayors uh, to protect our public security mm-hmm. and the, our community and make a community safe. Mm-hmm. This is. I just have a hard time trying to explain our frustration with this. This this in our part of the world not happening. I just I came back from a few months ago from a trip in Europe and I we were on a ship and we went through a lot of ports. Mm-hmm. They all had security. Yeah. Different types, but they were all security and we couldn't go places. We had to even hand in our passports to get access to the port. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's Those are secure something. areas. Um, they're treated as such as they should be. It's your first entry into the country uh, and we should be protecting our borders and when you don't, it, it is very, very frustrating. Uh, let's go to Jimmy in Surrey. Hi, Jimmy. Yeah, hi, Jazz. Uh, you know, first of all, yes, I agree with the fact that we do need some type of policing assistance to the courts. Because the fact is that you got the customs people doing a lot of the work anyhow. Now, there's no, I don't think there's any big epidemic of, uh, you know, crime happening at the docks today that wasn't happening 50 years ago. So this report is not something that's mind-boggling to the average Joe, first of all. Second of all, do you have enough police forces uh, officers today where you want to establish another one? If you do, what's going to happen is what they did with the SkyTrain. A lot of these guys that are senior in other departments are going to cash out, and they're going to get these cushy jobs. And then every six months or a year, they'll catch a, you know, a container full of something, and then all of a sudden they'll make a... Then they'll just- Jimmy, uh, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Um, I get your point, but this is national security. This, these are our ports. These are goods and services coming in. We've got three million uh, containers coming in through Roberts Bank alone. And uh, as you know, a few months ago, it was approved for expansion. That, will exp- uh, that would mean five million containers uh, uh, coming through. Uh, Chief Constable DeWard, uh, in regards to policing a port like that, any sense of how many, physically, how many officers you would need? 
There's so many different models that we saw when we actually were looking at this report, you, you know, whether it was Long Beach or whether it was LA or whether it was Seattle, mm -hmm. we had the opportunity to see some different models. So that number varies on the, on how you engage the federal resources, the RCMP obviously, how you engage CBSA, and then what you do for municipal policing. Uh, but there was always some sort of tie back to the city where the port was involved in, and there was always some sort of municipal presence is what we do know for sure. Would that be a separate, so you're saying different models, generally in other countries, are they, but are they separate from different police departments in the sense that you are a port police person, that's what you handle, that's your priority, that's, that, that's what you do? Absolutely, so you're dedicated for sure. Okay. Yeah, so for example, in Long Beach, what they did is they actually contracted the Long Beach Police Service to have a Ports Police Division. Mm. Well, in Seattle, they actually had a Ports Police, which was a separate organization. So there are different models available that you could look at. And I think that would be, if there is support for this kind of work to look down the future, that would be sort of what the next research would provide is here's three or four different models you could look at. Wow. Well, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mayor Harvey, uh, I'm really glad you commissioned this, uh, uh, both of you for coming here today, because it is a no-brainer. I mean, really, there isn't much to talk on this. I mean, it's pretty obvious drugs are coming through. It's absurd that we've got some cameras up and perhaps some intel that I don't know about and our listeners wouldn't know about and perhaps you wouldn't know about. But the broad scheme of things, we still need boots on the ground and we still need uh, human intelligence and we still need you know, some institutional knowledge and history at the port as, as these officers would be working there for a very long time. All of that's missing at this point. Well, I'd just like to say that it always comes up uh, funding. It's not right to have the taxpayer pay for this. Yeah, and the report right. states that one of the options is a $10 levy on every container. That would more than provide sustainable funding for years and years to come. Yeah. And it should be a cost within the port community itself. When I've talked to people that are using the uh, containers, they said they had no problem with that. $10, they're paying between 2500 to 3500 now, and the market fluctuates, as you know. Yeah. But $10 a container, that would also allow the federal government to have more resources for the CBSA program, which work extremely hard, the employees there. No fault of theirs. Uh, but we need a different funding model, and that's one that I think would work very quickly. All right. Well, we'll stay on top of this story because I think, as you say, it's a program that you think on the surface pays for itself, and it keeps our uh, our uh, citizens uh, at least safer uh, and uh, at least gives the bad guys something else to think about when they're shipping the stuff that we definitely don't want to see in our communities. All right, folks, thanks to you, uh, Mayor Harvey, and thanks to you, Thank Chief Constable Dubard. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for the time. And absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.